Events of the past 12 months have once again highlighted that Australia still has a long way to go when it comes to our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. 20 years on from the Reconciliation March of 2000, the path to reconciliation is still one that as a nation we have a long way to travel. In that spirit of reconciliation, I would like to offer my respects to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, both past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the UX Australia podcast. I am joined from Boston by Amy Buker. Amy, hello. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. Now, tell me, it's, it's Sunday night in Boston. How are things? Um, it is a very strange time, as you well know. You know we are um, not doing as well as many other parts of the world with the pandemic, so things are very quiet here. been mm. just here in my home, and the weather's starting to turn nasty because it's our fall, so um, we had mm. some snow yesterday. It, it just feels like a very quiet, kind of dark time right now, so we're doing our best to make the best of it and muddle through physically dark and then of course you've got the u.s election coming up in just a few days hopefully, we do hopefully that will um that will be a bright a bright spot in 2020 we'll see i'm i'm nervous about it i am actually working the polls which is a, a long day you you show up at six in the morning and you can't leave until nine at night at the earliest but really you have to finish accounting for all of the votes that have come into that polling place one of the reasons I decided to do it is because I know otherwise I would be glued to Twitter all day, just having an anxiety attack and unable to do anything about it. So this way, I'm not allowed to use my phone when I'm actually on duty helping polls, helping at the polls. So That's hopefully right. that helps me. <laughs> so you can make some more productive use of that, um, that energy. Yeah. Now, of course, in the US, um, we see... Uh, occasions where there are quite long voting lines um, and my understanding of US um, uh, elections is that if you're in line before polls close then you're allowed to post your vote no matter how long that subsequently takes, right? That's correct, yes. Now we, we see that in some areas and we've already seen that with some of the early voting people lining up for 11 and 12 hours to, to cast mm -hmm. a vote. In early voting for listeners in Australia and in New Zealand in particular, that's quite surprising. We had an election over our weekend and I doubt anyone um, casting their votes in Queensland or more recently in our, in our capital territory waited more than five or 10 minutes to cast their vote. Um, to these these uh, stories of long voting lines are quite quite unique to the American experience, I think, for us. Yeah, I, I wish it were more like it is in Australia and New Zealand. That's how it should be. Um, I will say that it varies depending on region of the country and, and basically who's in control because having fewer places to vote is a voter suppression tactic. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, sometimes there are places where they have deliberately limited the number of locations where people can go. But another thing that happens is they don't have enough people to actually work at the polls, which was in my mind when I decided that that was the thing I wanted to do. The, mm. the line moves faster if there are more people who can service the, the folks waiting in line. So, That's great. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's definitely a real problem. I wish it were something that 
weren't the case because there's it, it really isn't fair to ask people to give up that much of their time to exercise one of their rights. So it's, it's really, really unfortunate that that has been the case. We, 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 we're going to get on to the topic of your book and we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's, it's a good example of how we can shift the design of things to encourage behaviours in one direction or another. You mentioned that those long voting lines, a smaller number of polling places, polling places that service quite large geographic areas, areas where people don't necessarily have access to public transport or vehicles, which mm -hmm. makes it, you know, all of those things are deliberately designed mechanisms to encourage a behaviour of not voting. So I'm going to I'm going to allow that to be a segue into talking about designing for behaviour, which is the topic of your book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So my book is called Engage: Designing for Behaviour Change, and I really was hoping it would be a how-to manual for people with uh, user experience backgrounds of all sorts to bring behaviour science into the way that they do their jobs because that really is what a behavior change designer does. Um, we consider target behaviors, really specific things that we want people to do. And I, I love that you segued with this example of voting because voting is a fabulous target behavior. It's a really specific measurable action that we want people to take or not, yes. <laughs> but you know, I want people to take it. Hmm. And what we try to do is first of all, understand people's goals around that behavior. I take a motivational science approach and then we want to design experiences that make it easier for them to do that. So the behavior change frameworks and theories that I bring into my approach, they're really ways for me to understand what are the barriers to this target behavior? What are the things that make this behavior easier? And how do I know based on previous research that I can have some confidence that these approaches to making the behavior more likely are actually going to work? So, you know, I, I really think of behavior change design almost as a, a risk reduction mechanism in some sense where we have this deep body of knowledge that exists but hasn't historically been all that accessible in UX because it lives in the behavior science world. Okay. So behavior change designers have this opportunity to bridge those two worlds and really bring what we've learned from psychology and other social sciences into the design of mm. products and experiences. And this, this seems to be an area that has been around for a long time, like this, this notion of um, behaviour change and how we encourage and understanding motivation has a, a, a fairly long history. I mean, how far back does the literature go on this as a topic? Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that you say that because you're right that behaviour change has a long history, but behaviour change design has a pretty short one. Yes. Um, so I, I can get into that, but in terms of the literature, Probably modern psychology started about 100, 120 years ago. Um, you know, one of the, I don't use the work of Freud. I think most modern psychologists don't touch the work of Freud except for some of the fundamental concepts like the idea that we do have, um, you know, thoughts that are not in our consciousness and those sorts of things. Those have mm -hmm. lived on. But um, he, he was really, I, I would say, around the beginning of modern psychology and when mm -hmm. there began to be more of this, um, you know, organized field of research that was really done in an empirical fashion. There's, um, there is psychology work from the 1800s that is a little bit more trial and error and maybe less organized. Um, the work that I draw on most often, though, like self-determination theory of motivation, which is yeah. what I use to organize the structure of my book, in fact, mm -hmm. that's about 40 years old. So okay. that 
came to being with the work of DC and Ryan. A lot of people are familiar with some of their their work on motivation about extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. The sort of more blown out, bigger version of that idea is self-determination theory. And they have a center at the University of Rochester in New York that specializes, focuses on using that theory to understand all different kinds of behaviors. So in the last 40 years, they've really built up this terrific knowledge base that um, a lot of it is available online uh, and it's just really great applied research. So they've looked at, you know, finance and health and sports Mm. performance and all these different areas. They've done research around the world. So there's international studies using this theory and we can understand how it looks the same and different across different parts of the world. So, um, you know, for first psychology, I would say this 40 year body of evidence is pretty robust. Yeah. That's wonderful, and we've we've only in maybe the last ten years, fifteen years. Do you think I'm being sort of uh, harsh or, or generous when I say that it's only over sort of that time frame that we've really seen behaviour change design or designing for behaviour change um, really coming through in in the design field. Yeah, that feels right to me. I um, so I, I got into I finished grad school and got my first professional job in 2006, mm-hmm. and definitely didn't. It took me about a year or two to get into a role where I was doing what I like to do, which is bringing this this psychology and this behavior science into user experience. But I had to kind of fight my way into it. I, I took a job with a different title and kind of said like, hey, I have this training that I could probably use to do this job just a little bit differently and was lucky to work for an organization that um, had experience with behavior scientists. And we we were a startup. So, you know, if you work in a startup, it's sort of anything that you can contribute, you're welcome to contribute, which was a great place to be at that stage in my career in a field that was still not quite uh, together. Yes. Um, I think the first time I ever became aware, though, of people who are really doing behavior change design, maybe a better and more formalized version of what I had cobbled together was probably 2010 or 2011. Okay. And it was actually, I went, I had just moved back to Boston from Michigan, where I went to grad school, and I stayed there for a few years working. Um, And I was working remotely, and I wanted to make professional friends. I wanted to have a local community. And so I went to this conference called Healthcare Experience Design that was a brand new conference. And it turns out MadPow hosts it. It's our annual healthcare conference, but it was the very first one. I remember. And I remember sitting in that conference and just being like, oh, my God, there are people who do the type of work I want to do. This is amazing. And it was – I just remember being thrilled that – I wasn't the only person who was doing these sorts of things. And in fact, that there were people who were further down the road than I was even. So, you know, I think some of, especially because I come from the psychology background, I don't necessarily produce the most beautiful UX artifacts. I'm not a visual designer. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to see people who had those skill sets and were bringing in the behavior change, to me, that was just like a lightning bolt. That was great. It was so cool. Yeah. No, that's good. And that's, uh, that's a conference that still runs today, right? It still hosts. It does. Yep. Yep. Um, We usually do that one in the spring. Um, It's been in both April and June, just depending on, you know, what's going on that year. Um, And then we have a second conference now called Financial Experience Design that was just a few weeks ago in October. And so it's a very similar model, except the focus is all on financial experience, um, fintech type stuff. Yeah. Now, the the combination of um, healthcare and behavior change and designing for behavior um, starts to raise questions around how how we define 
what better looks like. So we're, we're trying to design for better behavior um, and better outcomes. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about how you navigate what can be um, some difficult moral and ethical terrain? Yeah, I mean, that's, there's so much to unpack I think is really important to think about is what's important to the user, what their goals are. And so that's one of the reasons I really like self-determination theory because it has built into its very core this idea that behavior change is more powerful if a person's motivated by something that's important to them. And so when we think about this idea of better behavior, what I've come to see is that better means more aligned with the person's goals. It has to support something that they want for themselves. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I really have taken to heart that makes a difference in how I approach my work and some of this ethical stuff is, um, you know, early on, I had a few mentors who would say, you cannot motivate somebody. You cannot give somebody motivation. You can help them connect with the motivation that they have. Mm -hmm. You can build things that help them live that motivation, but you don't give it to somebody. And with that in mind, a big ethical thing for me is always, is this something that a person wants to do? And there's a lot of design work in the middle of that. It's not just yes, no, because if you ask somebody, you know, hey, do you want to meet this bioclinical metric of getting your A1C below seven? Who cares, right? Nobody, nobody thinks that way. And uh, there's no value per se to a, a person, just a person living their life of reaching this bioclinical marker threshold that we've defined for them. But if you talk to somebody and you try to understand what's important to them, typically they have some sort of life goals, experiential goals, things that matter to them, Hmm. where you can start to draw the connection and say like, all right, you really love traveling and you you love being able to experience these new places. And so it's important to you that you keep your health in a place that you'll be able to continue to do that. You don't want to have to worry about Hmm. um, taking insulin through airport security, which is a huge hassle. Uh, you don't want to have to worry about not being able to eat the exotic food in the place where you've traveled because you don't know how many carbs are in it. Like, let's let's now think about the, all these diabetes-related health behaviors in terms of what matters to you. And so you start to draw the connections for people and make these behaviors into something that builds up to what matters to them. Um, that's not always possible. Sometimes people just really don't want to do something. It's not aligned with what they value. And mm. I personally believe in that case, we need to walk away from, from the the interaction and just say, okay, you know, it is not the right time for you to experience what I've designed. You are not interested in being a user of this intervention. And I I also believe that, you know, people change with time. So there may be that you meet with a potential user at point A and they're not ready or interested. But if Mm -hmm. you give them a little bit of time, if you don't, if you leave them with a good taste in their mouth, if you leave them with a pleasant interaction, then as things change for them, they might say, oh, I came across this product six months ago that I wasn't interested in then, but maybe it's helpful now. So, you know, I I believe in kind of planting those seeds and walking away from the conversation. But then, you know, I work as a consultant. So my projects are for a business client and then they go out to users. And so I've just talked a little bit about the user part. Yes. The client part is, is a real challenge because, you know, as you and I chatted briefly about before this, first of all, it's such a gray area most times. It's very rare that a client sits down and says, I want you to do this evil thing. <laughs> it's more, um, you know, edge cases. Less, less honest about it or, or they don't think of it in quite those terms. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really think most people don't think that they're doing the evil thing. Um, 
because it, it helps them, right? It's if they want you to do something, it's usually in their business interest. And that's yes. the lens that they're using to evaluate it. Like this yeah. is a good thing because it makes us money. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a very human point of view to have. So I get it's, that. It's the system that we're in largely. Yeah. That is yeah. the system that we're in. Yeah. So in that case though, you know, it's, it's, it's harder. So I do a lot of work in healthcare um, and a lot of clients who have, you know, I work for a pharmaceutical company sometimes, for example, and if they yep. have a, a pill, typically one of their goals is for patients to be more adherent to that medication, which, yes. you know, means they take the medication as prescribed by a healthcare professional mm -hmm. for as long as a healthcare professional recommends they do it. On the face, that's totally fine, right? If it's been prescribed to them, it's the right thing for their health. Um, you know, taking your medication as prescribed is usually because that's the right dose to get you to the health outcome, like all good. Yep. But of course, there's all this other stuff under the surface of I want my medication to be prescribed and not somebody else's. And I want to make sure that, you know, some of these medications or, or procedures, they're not um, required. Like there are other alternatives that are maybe less invasive or have fewer side effects or are less expensive. And we have to sort of negotiate where is the line between where we feel like we're just servicing, you know, serving our, our clients and our users in the best possible way. And where is that balance maybe not in the right place where we don't feel comfortable with it. And that's a really hard thing to, um, I mean, it, you know, to, uh, to work with. A, a, a more sort of extreme, you know, when you head down that path, you've got an opioid crisis in the US, which has been driven by a, a series of incentivized behaviors on the part of the doctors to prescribe medications that aren't actually in the best interest of the patient. So the patient's doing the right thing, or at least they think they are, but mm -hmm. the end result is that mm, maybe not so much. Right, yeah, and that, that's actually an example too where there are so many different different aspects of the situation. So the opioid crisis, at least in the United States, I mean, there were simultaneous effects of just what you're talking about. You have people who think they're doing the right thing, but they're taking this very addicting substance and their bodies are starting to crave it. And then we have the economic dynamics going on where it's, it's much more expensive to get more Oxycontin than it is to get heroin, which is much more addictive and dangerous. And there's the geopolitical issues going on that make heroin widely available in certain areas. Like yes. it, it was really this sort of perfect storm of different factors that yeah. led to a terrible outcome. Yes, yeah. Let's let's pull back from that sort of uh, dark <laughs> drink a little bit. You've, yeah. you've talked um, you talked about healthcare. Um, we touched on on voting. Um, uh, let's talk about finance a little bit. Um, you mentioned that there's there's a, a, a conference at Mount Power hosts around that area. Where like where does behaviour change come into the into the financial picture? Yeah, quite a bit. It's a new new area for me. I never worked on financial services and fintech before I came to MadPow, um, which is four and a half years ago now. It's actually, I can't believe yeah. it's been so long. But I've been pleasantly surprised to find that from a psychological perspective, the dynamics that happen with finance are really similar to what happens in health. You know, we ask people to make short-term sacrifices in order to support long-term gains. Mm -hmm there's usually a lot of complicated information involved that people don't necessarily understand. And so there's a lot of need to communicate things um, piecemeal and in a structured manner so that people yep. can learn and understand. A lot of jargon in terms, as well. Tons of jargon um, and very, very, very regulated industries, which limits yes. in some ways what you can produce from a UX perspective for people. Like yes. there are times where 
if you didn't have to worry about regulations, you could make something dead easy, but got to follow the rules. Yes. A lot of the, the fintech work that I've done has actually bridged um, health and finance. So, I, you know, again, very American, U.S. focused, but we do a lot of work on health insurance. Right. And how do we build, for example, a web portal where somebody might go and choose their health insurance plan? Mm -hmm. One of the big issues that we encounter is that, um, you know, health insurance plans are extremely confusing to people. Yes. And also people are motivated to limit the amount of money they spend. Mm -hmm. But insurance plans are structured to make that difficult for people to figure out where they will actually spend the least money. So there's usually a premium that you pay. It's it's a monthly payment that yep. allows you to have a plan. And then there's a deductible, which is um, you have to pay for a certain dollar amount of your, of your healthcare costs out of pocket. And once you've met that deductible, things start to get covered under the plan. So people try to minimize that premium, but sometimes yeah. the deductible gets so big that they really don't get any value out of the policy. And so a, a yeah. problem that we've been asked to work on again and again is how do we help people understand what their costs will look like so they can choose a plan that actually minimizes them. Yeah, wow. Okay. And I mean, the consequences of getting that right or wrong can be quite severe as we see in the US time and time again. I mean, health health-related bankruptcy um, mm -hmm. is, I, I think, still the leading cause of um, bankruptcy in the US. I think it's something like 80% of bankruptcies related to health care costs. It's, it's not good. <laughs> no, no. And like um, in Australia with the Australian health uh, care system, um, we hear those stories in the US um, and it's quite... It's quite difficult to, to fathom at times. Um, but like that's 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 a whole other conversation. I think we could talk about uh, healthcare. I'm sorry, I keep bringing you into dark corners. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's I mean it's 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 good. It's good to shine a light on them and to and to talk about them. But it's um, yeah. It's it's one of those interesting things where there has been for quite a long time a, a distinct difference in the way healthcare is treated in the US um, and the overriding drivers of how the system is structured and how the system is designed. Um, and you, yep. see it, you see it in all sorts of uh, different ways. The simple fact that you know, your national insurance is delivered by private hospitals primarily and paid for by insurance, which is tied to employment um, is is completely different to what we see here in Australia and and as a model mm -hmm. that subsequently drives behaviors around um, denying health care to somebody um, you know in an emergency in um, of even you know we, we see stories of people wearing bracelets saying do not call an ambulance <laughs> yeah. can't afford it um, you know if if I fall or if I pass out sort of thing um, do not call an ambulance because I can't I can't afford to pay for one um, and that's that's uh, quite a quite an odd setup um, but it's also quite a sad sort of setup I think that you're in a situation where people are choosing between um, money and health in, yeah, in, such, is, and in, in such dire circumstances. And I guess there, there's kind of a positive and a negative to that in terms of behavior change design and the type of work I do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the negative, I, I guess I, they're both 
positive and negative. Hmm. It's a particular problem we always have to consider when we're doing any kind of health behavior change pro project or in building an intervention. We know that money is one of the factors in how people are able to care for their physical and mental health. Yes. And so even before we do the research, we always understand that cost is going to be a factor. And the more that we can help people find low cost ways to do things and to mm -hmm. think preventatively, because that's the easiest way not to spend the yes. money is if you can keep yourself from getting sick, yes. which is not always possible, but we can try. So our projects tend to always have those sorts of ingredients, that prevention yeah. and then the cost saving. Mm. Um, and that's kind of a sad thing. It is an interesting puzzle to work on as a designer, but I, you know, I would rather not have to work on it. <laughs> I, I think on the positive side, what I've seen, especially in the last few years is, you know, we also do work with healthcare plans mm. and with care providers, health systems, hospitals. And I've seen more and more um, that those organizations are willing to be more creative about how they provide services and things they could do to make things more accessible and affordable for people. Because I think that they realize, too, that at some point, if they drive all of the consumers out of the market, yeah. I, you know, the, the economic game doesn't last for the very long term. Yeah. And as they realize that, they are starting to get more creative and more open to different sorts of solutions and offerings. So, you know, I, I just worked with a health plan client who was really interested in understanding if they could buy cell phone minutes for their members, for the people who have that insurance, so that oh, wow. they could more easily access telehealth. Interesting. And I'm like, oh, that's actually really creative to think about subsidizing a different service that falls yeah. totally outside of healthcare so that they could use it for healthcare. So that's been kind of a heartening thing to see that these organizations are starting to realize that the, the high cost of healthcare isn't going to help them in the long run either. Yeah. We are, we are at time, and I think that's a, that's a nice optimistic note to end on. <laughs> so, Amy, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, good luck at the polls on Tuesday. I hope, I hope Election Day treats you well. I hope the result... Uh, treats you well. Um, there are an awful lot of people in uh, many places outside the US looking on with a great deal of interest. But thank you very much for today. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks, Steve. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much.